Well, this is odd. This is kind of like uh, sitting around a dinner table with your dad who teaches you lessons all the time, and then dad looks at you one day and says, hey, by the way, I want you to teach today. Um, so I was uh, trying to figure out exactly how I'd introduce a message this morning, and several things came to mind. One was just the privilege that it is to be asked to come up here and to share from God's Word. It's something that I enjoy doing, and uh, I'm glad that I have the opportunity to do it this morning. But I can't tell you how daunting a prospect it is to stand in front of a group of people that in many cases know me better than a lot of people in my own family. And so I get up here and I get to share some truth from the scriptures, and the fact of the matter is that when you share truth from scriptures, it can be difficult sometimes. And I think you all understand, because I think Paul does a good job of expressing to us that when someone stands in this position and shares truth from the scripture, that they're not just speaking at you, uh, they're speaking at themselves as well. So hopefully you recognize that I'm not coming here with any kind of pretense, I'm not coming here to somehow suggest that I'm better than you, because the fact of the matter is I know that there's many of you out there that could just as easily be standing here, because I'm not the best speaker, and I'm not the most knowledgeable, but there's one thing I can assure you of, that as I was preparing to come up here, that my primary concern was to rightly handle the word of truth. So it's my prayer that that's what I'll do this morning. So what I want to do is I want to begin with a prayer and just to ask that you would join me in asking God to speak to us through his word as we dedicate our time to him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a privilege it is to have you in our lives. And Father, what a privilege it is to have a letter that you've given us that we can just study our entire lives, Lord, and come to understand what your heart truly has to say about everything that matters. Father, this morning my prayer is that I and everyone here would just be open to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Father, as your word is sent out, it never returns void. Lord, my prayer is that our hearts would be opened and that we would not leave here the same people we were when we walked in the door. Father, it's my prayer that through the transforming truth of your word, that we would be more ready to share the truth of your word and what you've done in our lives with others so that we may draw them to you. Father, we offer our time to you in thanksgiving this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I grabbed a portion of scripture that I thought I knew a little something about, and uh, I learned something. You know, whenever I approach Scripture, I approach it with a bias. I I have some information in the back of my mind that I think I know about that Scripture, and I kind of put it in there before I even read it. And it's important for me to recognize that that's not always right. So as an example, I I decided that we'd go to the book of Philippians today. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians. And when I think about the book of Philippians, what I usually think of is peace. Peace is the word I think of when I think of Philippians. If I I took my overall perspective, what, what do I think?
think about this book, I have a pretty positive feeling, or as my daughter would say, I feel pretty happy about it. It gives me a happy feeling to think about the book of Philippians. What we'll find is that uh, we need to check our biases at the door when we come to Scripture. Uh, because my presuppositions coming into the book of Philippians were not all right. Now, our, our memories, while they're useful and they're valuable, can be faulty. And that's why so many people really think, they honestly, truly believe that the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. They truly believe it's there. But let me tell you, if you're one of those, it's not there. The Bible does not say that. It's why I, in a conversation with someone, high-level theological discussion, which I kind of fancy myself as being, I I maybe think more highly of of myself than I ought to in those conversations, as evidenced by this, I'm talking to this guy and I said, well, where exactly is it in the scripture that it says that if I knew that Christ would return tomorrow, I'd still plant my apple tree? I believed it was there. As it turns out, that's a misquote of something Martin Luther once said. So whenever we think that we know what the Scripture says, what we have to do is understand, you know what, it's important that we read it. We can't just sit back and think, you know what, I've gotten in there and I've wrestled with it and I understand it and I no longer have to get in that book. No, we have to read it. We have to check everything that we think we believe against what the Scriptures actually say. And so looking at my impression of the book of Philippians, it was interesting that my memory would be one of peace given the history of the church. So we'll start out in Acts, uh, which you don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but I encourage you, if you'd like, just to make sure that I'm telling you the truth. Acts chapter 16 is where we first hear about the, the city of Philippi. It says in verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we, are staying in the, we were staying in the city for some days. So we know that on this trip, as Luke is recording the history of their journey, they came to a town called Philippi, and they hung out there for a while. We learn in verse 14 that while they were there, Paul and Silas won their first Christian convert in Europe. As they were talking to a group of women, we learn in Acts 16:14 that a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Following her conversion, her whole family was converted. They all were baptized. The work of evangelism continued. And then we come across this little story, which I think is very uh, insightful. It actually gives me some encouragement. You know, the scriptures don't just take a boiled down or, or, or a softened version of the events. They actually report things just as they happen. And did you know that Paul got annoyed? I find so much encouragement in that. Paul actually got annoyed. He had this lady that was following him around. She was possessed by a demon spirit, and she's saying, these people are men of God. They're do-. And eventually he's like, I've had enough of it. And he turns around, and he just performs this exorcism out of frustration. And he frees this woman of bondage out of his frustration but, you know, the people that were her masters, they, they didn't like that very much because their source of income was just exercised right in front of their eyes. So what did they do? They grabbed Paul and Silas, and they brought them to court. They said, hey, these guys, they just ruined my life over here. You should do something about it. And in verses 22 to 23, we hear what happens. The crowd rose up against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. 
And my first thought of this is peace. Ultimately, them being thrown into prison results in the conversion of the Philippian jailer. You're probably familiar with the story. Earthquake, doors fly open. They don't leave. They hang out with the Philippian jailer. He becomes a convert. His entire household is a convert. And apparently there were some other converts because after they get thrown in prison, now so the, the jail doors fly open, they're still in prison after all of that. They hung around, and now they're being released. Very interesting story, by the way, something that you should study because I find it very interesting that eventually it's realized, hey, these guys are Roman citizens. We never should have beat them to begin with. Let's let them quietly go their way. And Paul says, uh-uh. You threw me in jail publicly. You're going to come and release me publicly. And when they did, he didn't just run away. Because there were all of these other people there that had been converted at their encouragement. And so they went, and we see in verse 40, that when they went out of prison, they entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So despite the affection that Paul feels for these people there, and we'll we'll see that, he's very affectionate about these people. He's got a special place in his heart for them. His memory of his time spent in Philippi was actually very negative. We know this because before writing the letter to the Philippians, he referred to his experience there in a letter to the Thessalonians. And he said, hey, don't forget, I suffered and was mistreated in Philippi. So I think it's important to just recognize that Paul said that because so many times we think that leading the Christian life and being good Christians and not complaining means that we don't tell the truth. And that's not the case at all. We can tell the truth about our experiences. We can tell people exactly what happened. But our experiences are redeemed through our experience with Christ. So all of this background serves to do one thing for me. It challenges my assumptions. And that is very good. If you ever get into Scripture and your, your assumptions are never challenged, that tells me you're not reading deep enough. We're not perfect. The Lord has work to do with us, and he's going to challenge our assumptions. And so I was glad that he did that. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you on my journey to better understand some of the key themes in the book of Philippians. Now, I know that sounds ambitious, and it is. Uh, I had planned to get through the whole book. I won't. Uh, we're going to touch on just some key points in chapters 1 and 2. So if you were starting to order lunch, you can wait. Don't worry, you'll be able to get there. Um, So let's start at the very beginning. Who is the intended audience of this letter? It's all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So what can we take from that? Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. So many times we read this and think, yeah, boy, I know an unsaved person that needs to hear that. The fact of the matter is he's writing this to members of the church, those who are already Christian. There's one other thing, though, that I I like to point out here, and that is that um, he also points out the fact that all of those who are serving in the church, the deacons and the overseers, they're, they're included among the saints. So the reason that stuck out to me was not because I think that those who serve or those who are are doing things in the church are somehow at a higher level, but it's because I think those of us who are serving at any level need to understand that what we believe matters. It doesn't matter what level of service you have. The deacons, remember, they were serving food. They're counted among the saints. The other thing that I think is important is he mentions the fact that we've got 
the, the people in the church, and we've got the leaders. So no one can say, hey, this doesn't apply to me. He's writing to the leaders, and he's writing to those of us who sit in the pews. He's writing to those of us who are the laity. So if you are counted among the saints, then this applies to you. Now, he has a lot of other words that he, he shares with these people, things concerning his confidence in them and the fact that he wants to be there. But in the midst of all of those kind words, Paul lays down a challenge. It starts in verse 9 and goes through verse 11. It says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a great reminder to us as a church. Even if we think that we are a loving church, or a knowledgeable church, or a discerning church, we can't just sit down and be proud of the fact that we're knowledgeable and discerning and loving. We should always be more and more discerning and loving and knowledgeable. And why is that? It's not so people will look at us and say, oh, look, what a great knowledgeable church. Oh, they're so discerning. That's not it at all. It's because it demonstrates that the claims of Christ and the promises of Scripture are true. You know, none of us can stand up here and say, hey, we've arrived at our final state. We've got no more improving to do. There are a lot of people in the world, lost people, who will look at us and think that that's what we believe, that we've arrived, we're there. No, that's not the case. It would be crazy for us to say that. And Paul had just said earlier in this book that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? That means even if I think I'm there, if Christ Jesus hasn't returned yet, then he hasn't finished his work in me. So I should continually be growing and developing. There should be movement and growth. The watching world will know that that's happening because they will see the fruit. I don't need to go back through the whole series of messages that we just came through talking about fruit. But the fact of the matter is that fruit is there for a purpose. The watching world needs to see it. And in case we're tempted to say, here's my fruit and now I'm proud of it, we have to notice that Paul reminds the church at Philippi and by extension reminds you and me that that fruit and the growth that it is evidence of comes through Jesus Christ. We can't claim credit for it. He first calls me to righteousness. This is a great truth. Jesus Christ calls me to righteousness. And then he becomes the means through which I am perfected. Paul goes on to deal with some division in the church at Philippi. And he does a really good job, I think, of taking the personalities out of the whole conflict. He, he says, you know what? Some people are preaching because they don't like me. They think I'm wrong, and so they're preaching Christ. And there are others who are preaching because they really like me. And, and they're preaching Christ. And then he demonstrates that love can cover a multitude of sins. Because he says in verse 18, after acknowledging both sides of these, hey, some are doing this because they hate me. Some are doing this because they like me. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. So what's his concern? Does he care what people think about him? No. He looks and says, what are they hearing about Christ? They can think all the things they want to about me because... I'm the chief among sinners, and I, I, don't, I don't hold myself too highly. So long as they're hearing the right things about Christ, that's what I'm concerned with. And 
I read that and I thought, you know, there's probably some clever application of this concept to our situation as Harbor Rock. And I decided not to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I'll leave that to people that know it a little bit better. Uh, but my focus remains here on what Paul's instructions are to those people that he feels all this affection for. And the next comment that stuck out to me was all the way down the page on verse 27. In verse 27 it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This language stood out to me like it was bold and underlined. It says, stand firm, strive together, your opponents you get to suffer for his sake. You'll experience what I did, and you'll experience what I'm experiencing right now. And we have to remember, when Paul was in Philippi, he was beaten and thrown in jail. When Paul was writing this letter, he was in prison in Rome. You get to experience exactly what I experienced. This is not a city that is full of peace. Somehow I missed that. It wasn't a fun place to be. But here's the thing. These challenges are not a pass to act out and gossip and slander those who are persecuting them. They couldn't say, oh, I'm being mistreated, and because I'm being mistreated, I, I can slander people. Or because I'm being mistreated, I can say bad things against people. Our conduct is a sign of our salvation. Notice that, though. It says that it's a sign of your salvation. Nowhere does it say that it is your salvation. Your conduct is a sign of your salvation. And Paul wants to hear the reports from these people. He says, you know what? There's something about striving together with you. You're doing great things, and I want to hear those good reports. And that's what Ecclesiastes 4 is talking about, right? Verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if, if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is none other to lift him up. He says, I want to hear what you're doing because it makes all of this worth it. Yeah, I'm in jail. Yeah, I got beat. But so long as you're doing the stuff that I know Christ can do through you, then I'm willing to make the sacrifice. And he confirms that in chapter 2, verse 2. He asks the Philippians to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But that's not all that Paul said there. In addition to being a sign of salvation to those who stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, it's also a sign of the impending destruction of those who inflict the persecution. Now, we need to be careful here, so make sure you listen to everything I'm about to say, because I could easily take myself and everybody else off track here. But uh, this, is the, this is the point, that perseverance and faith is nothing if it's not tested. Your perseverance and your faith must be tested. But for those who are the source of such tests, there's trouble. There is. There's trouble. Paul says in another letter, 
It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And he even goes on to say, those who do not know God will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So if you're anything like me, you get to this point and you say something like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. I I can endure persecution. I can return kindness for evil because at least I know that in the end, it will be clear that I was the better man. Hopefully that made you cringe just a little bit. I'm ashamed to admit it. But the fact of the matter is, that's how I think. I'm going to assume, just because it makes me feel better, that I'm not alone. That this is just the human condition. We say, I can, okay, fine, I'll do that because you know what? In the end, you'll get yours. That's exactly the reason why I need to study this book. And that's why I need to understand Paul's true intent in writing the letter. Because the fact of the matter is that my suffering has absolutely nothing to do with me. Instead, what I should do is I should humbly endure persecution so that a clear difference is evident between the redeemed and the lost. That distinction needs to be there. The world needs to have a choice. And then, by, by establishing that distinction, the lost man may recognize his plight and turn to Christ. Isn't that what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 9? When he says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now, I'll do whatever it takes. If you don't know Christ, I don't care what it takes. I'll do it to get you there. Right here in Philippians, this is what he's referring to when we see in chapter 2, of, or verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So what's Paul referring to here? Is he saying, hey, you know what? You guys need to take care of each other. Fellow Christians, you've got to watch out for each other. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think that's definitely part of what he's saying. If we as believers look out only for ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ have basic needs that are going unmet, that's a terrible witness to the world. And it's what James was warning against in James 2, 15 to 17. He says there, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do nothing, you do not give them what is necessary for their bodies, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So we can't just say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're hungry. I'll pray for you, brother. No, we've got to say, hey, I'm so sorry that you're hungry. Here's a sandwich and let me pray with you, brother. Right? I can't remember who it was that said that if you want to go out and do homeless ministry and you want to give people tracts, wrap a sandwich in that tract. Right? Make sure that we're meeting the basic needs. But more than that, we have to ask ourselves, what does it truly mean to have the attitude of Christ? Why is it? that Christ emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Why did he do it? Paul put it this way in his letter to Timothy. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. That's it. That's the bottom line. He came to save sinners. And so I'm left to conclude this, that my endurance of persecution is not so that I may be justified in my humility. It's for the sake of Christ. And Paul reminds these people that their suffering is similar to his. And what was the result of Paul's suffering at Philippi? It was the salvation of Lydia, the salvation of the jailer. In other words, the existence of the church at Philippi is what resulted from his suffering there. I could almost hear the Philippian jailer. He'd say something like, you know, when those doors opened up, Paul would have been justified in just running out of there. He was unjustly there to begin with. Why did he even bother to stay around? You know what he did? He thought I was better than he was. He thought I was more important than he was. He stayed there and he saved my life. Oh, how I would love to be able to say, I have the heart of Paul. May I, by my conduct, cause others to ask, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Can you imagine? I don't even know where to take that. But Paul, he, so here he's stirred everybody's hearts. Everyone in the church is reminded explicitly that, you know what, Jesus, he's ultimately going to come and he's going to be glorified and he's going to be verbally acknowledged as Lord by everyone. It doesn't really matter if they want to or they don't. He's going to be glorified. And then he presses them into action. Consider the implications of verses 12 and 13. This is in chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what's he saying here? Is he saying, hey, we've got a salvation by works methodology here. Yeah, yeah, that's what he's saying. Hopefully I heard some laughs, but that is what he's saying. But don't throw me out yet. Let me explain what it means. He is talking about a doctrine of salvation by the works of God, who at the moment of salvation changes our hearts and causes us to will or to want what God wants. And I won't have time to adequately unpack all of this, but the, the next point here is that you know, God changes our desires. He brings them in line with his good pleasure, but he leaves us in our bodies. How many of you have lost your bodies yet, right? We're, we're still in these bodies. He leaves us in our culture. He leaves us in this world, and he leaves our free will intact. So from the moment of salvation, we're in a battle. We've got to fight. Remember those words that I talked about before? We've got that battle that we have to face now. Our old beliefs, our old behaviors, our old attitudes, they're all still there. And that's why Scripture is full of comments like James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What was Brittany's song? Right? Oh, the name of Jesus. Right? At the name of Jesus, we need to resist. We need to be prepared to call out that weaponry when the time is right. Or Romans 
another one that gives me such uh, encouragement. For what I am doing, this is Paul, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. He's talking about this struggle that we have to, have to endure throughout our lifetime here. And then 2 Peter 1. In 2 Peter, there's this whole list of good attributes, things that we should see in our lives. And after making that whole list, we read in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, increasing. That should be a word of encouragement. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect. I'll see myself fail. I'll struggle with things. I won't always get it right. But so long as I'm seeing some improvement, I can take some, some courage in that. I can be encouraged by that. So as we submit to God, He will change our will to bring it in line with His good pleasure. And He'll also work through us to accomplish His will. He gets the glory. We just need to submit to Him and respond with awe as we see the evidence of His gracious work in us. And despite the fact that His work requires that we deny ourselves daily and take up our cross, Paul wants to be sure the Philippians don't do this with the wrong spirit. It's easy to walk around and say, yeah, my life is awful, I guess I'm bearing my cross today. But in verse 14, he tells the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Can you see why my assumptions have been challenged here? This church was not a church that was experiencing peace. It was a church in need of peace. They're being arrested. They're being challenged in their faith. They're being beaten, jailed. And over time, it's begun to wear on them. And we can see how it's wearing on them because there are divisions rising up in the church. We've got people speaking against Paul. We've got people getting on the other side saying, no, 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 we agree with Paul. I'm sure there were some in the group that were pointing to their suffering as evidence of the fact that they're on the wrong track. If you were really right with God, do you think you'd be suffering like that? Paul writes to tell them, hey, stay the course. Maintain unity. Do right. Put others first. And oh, by the way, don't complain and argue. Why, why did he tell them that? They needed to hear that. It's not enough to put someone first. We have to do that without making them feel guilty about it. Oh, don't worry. I'll sacrifice this for your sake. That's not how it works. We can't look at others and think things like, well, why aren't they helping out? I'm always standing here doing this, and they're always over there doing that. I get that, because I, I am that sometimes. But that cannot be our attitude. Why? Why do we have to change our attitudes? Why do we have to do all of this stuff with joy? Why do we have to endure persecution and hardship and smile about it? comes back to the clear dividing line between saved and lost. There must be something different about us. If we can, by the power of God working through us, know and stand firm on what Paul calls here the word of life, 
while maintaining a spirit of unity and contentment and doing the work of serving others and sharing the gospel, then we're going to stand out like a light in this world. How many of you were here last week and you heard all of the descriptors of fire, right? And what was one of those descriptors? That fire attracts people. Fire attracts people. Just as they are suffering the same way that Paul is, by winning converts and nurturing them to stand firm in the assurance of their salvation, the Philippians will have their joy made complete, just as Paul did, by seeing people attracted to the light of Christ and becoming saved. I know that I've covered a lot of ground here, and uh, my style doesn't usually lend itself to bullet points and that, but what I did do is I tried to go back and look and say, what are the four main concepts or themes out of what we just went through that I can take away and that I can apply uh, going forward? The first is that the Lord has only begun a work in us, and it will not be completed until the day of Christ Jesus. That's critical. We can't be discouraged in the fact that we fall short sometimes. Our key word here is growth. If you like writing key words, I'll give you four of them. Growth is your key word. It should be evident in us. If you're not growing, don't get discouraged in the fact that you're not growing, but ask why. We all have plateaus. We'll all, we all go up and down. But what's the trajectory? Right? How many of you invest in, in 401k plans and retirement plans? And they tell you, hey, if you're, if you're going to move money in and out every time you see an up and down, don't worry about that. You need to look at the trend. That's my question for you. What's your trend? Are you on a growth trend? Second, I should maintain my composure. I should always do right, even in the face of persecution and hardship. Another way of looking at this, just to kind of put it in terms that I understand, is that if I'm tempted to believe that I just can't let things get pent up inside of me and from time to time I just need to vent, I just need to allow that to blow, that's not scriptural. The Bible does not say that. Our key word here is perseverance. Perseverance should be the hallmark of our character. Not because we're good at persevering, but because by the strength of God, we can persevere. He gives us new mercies every morning. He gives us what we need for the day. Third, I need to take my eyes off of myself, and I need to understand that none of this is about making me look good, either now or later. The reason I'm committed to grow and the reason why I persevere is so that God can do his work through me. And the key word there is humility. Humility will ensure that the perfect plans of God can be accomplished through us. Now, do you get how awesome that is? You know, the, the truth of the matter is, if you read the scriptures, you will learn that the, God's perfect plans will take place. It's going to happen, with or without you. But God says, hey, if you'll just humble yourself, guess what? You get to be a part of it. I'm going to do my work through you. You just need to be humble. Fourth and finally, I need to understand that God wants to do all of this to draw others to himself. I must grow and persevere and humble myself so that those who persecute me may understand that they are lost and may come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So our key word here is love. So to summarize, growth, 
perseverance, humility, and love. So I'll close this with a prayer. And as we go to prayer, I've got a question for you. Does any of this, does any of this context give you a new appreciation for Philippians 4, 6 to 7? When I say I'm going to do a message on Philippians, everybody probably thinks of Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that I and I know many, Lord, struggle with peace. Father, I know that you have given us all we need to live this life in peace. Lord, my prayer this morning is that as we struggle through that, that you would just come alongside of us, Lord, that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring wisdom. And, Lord, that we would recognize also that it's not about me doing it to show how great I am, but that we would not be hesitant to reach out to our fellow brothers and sisters, Lord, to ask for that help and that encouragement. And, Lord, as we're approached, I pray that we wouldn't feel as though we're inadequate or have nothing to offer. But, Lord, to just know if we will focus our attention on the truth of your word, that that word will not return void. Father, may you be glorified in all we do this week. I ask your blessing on each one here. In Jesus' name. Amen.